Hey, Superstructure listeners, this is Andres Bernal, Andres in Theory on Twitter, and associate editor of the Money on the Left and Superstructure podcasts. I wanted to take this time to introduce a preview of our premium content over at Patreon. It's an audio sample of Scott Ferguson's neoliberal blockbuster lecture series. On this episode, you'll be listening to Historicizing the Neoliberal Blockbuster, which traces the origins, the place, and the role of the blockbuster in American film history. We have a lot of other cool stuff available and in the works, including our website, moneyontheleft.org, our academic journal, popular publishing vertical, and more media content. We want to be able to compensate our contributors for their time and efforts, so please consider supporting us with what you can. Also remember, this is not a hard paywall, and if you're experiencing hardships, just reach out. Thank you, and enjoy. When we talk about classical Hollywood cinema, very and, and quite frankly, all of cinema history and especially early cinema history, um, you're going, you get kind of metaphors and language that are suggestive of the ethereal, uh, of the kind of like light and airy or the silver screen, the shimmering silver screen. Um, I think it's no accident that it comes to be called the dream factory, right? There's something irreal, something, uh, you know, uh, you know and, and sometimes it's romantic, sometimes it's ghostly or ghastly, but it's, it's always this kind of strange netherworld, um, again, whether it's about romance or, or horror uh, or something, uh, some combination or in between. What, what happens in the shift uh, to the new Hollywood blockbuster is suddenly we start using new language, new descriptors, and we start using language like thrill ride, or block, uh, or or um, roller coaster, and we start using the the descriptive and evaluative language of immersion. In the in the um, classical Hollywood era, we might talk about um, you know suspending our disbelief, uh, something like that, being caught up in the story world. Um, but we didn't talk about immersion. We didn't talk about like this physical envelopment in a film, uh, and that. That's how we start um, making sense of this new aesthetic, right? And what I want us to do here is to recognize that difference and resist a kind of straightforward progress story. So that, especially for those of us who, who adore the blockbuster, and you can adore the blockbuster. Part of me adores the blockbuster. Part of me hates it. Um, life is complicated. Whether you like or, or don't like, the, like blockbusters or, or blockbuster as a whole, what I want you to at least for this class, just kind of put into suspension is the idea that, that basically cinema just gets better and better all the time. It's just, you know, I mean, cinema in the old days, like Casablanca, that was fine, but it was so primitive. And, you know, thank God George Lucas and Industrial Light and Magic came along and got rid of all those old cheesy effects because it just got better, right? Again, you can think and feel that, but for this course, let's suspend that and say, hmm, let's just actually just talk about the differences and how they relate to their historical context rather than starting with, oh, well, yeah, this is totally so much better.
So here are some of the ways that classical Hollywood cinema and, and really the history of cinema um, can be characterized phenomenologically. It, the cinema and cinema aesthetics uh, and the cinema technology typically emphasizes a kind of lightness or nimbleness, right? Especially like in action films, right? The, the pleasure in these films is seeing these kind of featherweight bodies leap from here to there, right? And there wasn't, you know, big booming sound effects to make you feel their weight. There was a kind of ethereal insubstantiality about uh, the construction of mise-en-scene, of, of space uh, in these films. You know, the, these films weren't caught up with establishing like clear gravitational relations, like ambiguous weights, you know, between uh, relative weights between things. Now, I'm not saying that they didn't care about representing physics or these kinds of things. They just didn't, they weren't preoccupied with them. Impacts were downplayed and special effects tended to be layered in these kinds of planar relationships that suggested these kind of abstract disjuncts between various planes. Now, in the blockbuster era of the immersive thrill ride, you have very clear, polarized feelings of lightness and heaviness. Essentially, a whole array of gravitational effects that are not just played out on screen, but are also enveloping you in an immersive experience. So that the part of the pleasure of a blockbuster is to be caught up in this system of weighted <laughs> lightness and heaviness you have more and more compacted material interactions. Constant impacts and gravity simulation. These films are increasingly sound-driven, sound effects-driven, and especially a ramping up of the, the role and place of base effects, which of course, acts in harmony with the goals of creating these compacted material relations that are all working in these gravity sim these immersive gravity simulations and rather rather than working in these abstract layered planar uh, fields of effects that all seem from our point of view today a little like wonky or cheap or you know um, all these sort of evaluative words that we typically use um, suddenly the z axis becomes very important for industrial lighting magic and blockbuster effects in, in creating whole volumetric experiences that come, come toward you, move away from you, and envelop you in tandem with sound effects that are increasingly surround sound. And you could add to this that the camera tends to be more omniscient, light, nimble, ethereal, the point of view, Whereas the camera in the blockbuster immersive aesthetics is more immersive. It, it feels like it's a physical object. If a big, a big dinosaur, you know, puts down its big old foot, it's going to rumble and it's going to shake the camera, right? That doesn't happen during the, during the classical Hollywood uh, era. So in classical Hollywood, my thesis about classical Hollywood from the perspective of the Hollywood blockbuster is that abstraction... Is, is seen to precede and mediate material relationships. Now, this is a kind of abstract thesis, but basically what I'll say is that Hollywood cinema, classical Hollywood cinema, the dream factory, really flaunted abstraction, played with abstraction, and was kind of always creating phenomenological experiences that, uh, 
that were were basically like thematizing abstraction, right? Making abstraction the whole point of being there. Now, um, there's so many different, this doesn't look one way, right? It can be subtle, it can be really Baroque uh, and intense. I had two examples for you. One was from Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo, which I teach in the history course. Some of you have taken that with me. Um, this is a film that's all about abstraction. It's a, it, and it's an interesting point of comparison because it's about a character who is afraid of heights and falls and there's falling sequences, but those falling sequences are not like a blockbuster. They're very, they're very abstract. They happen with silhouette. I had another more subtle example, the first 007 film, uh, Dr. No. And, uh, you know, th 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 this example shows Sean Connery, you know, in a chase sequence in a car. And, you know, when they cut to a medium shot of him driving the car, he's on the soundstage, right? And what's behind him is a, um, a rear projection of a shot they took at a different time of the world, you know, driving by behind him. And it, it looks displaced, right? I mean, it's a little bit of the pen in the water, right? It looks, it looks funky and weird, especially from a blockbuster point of view. So those are two examples of how abstraction is, is flaunted um, or, or permitted. I mean, there's, two, there's a variety of ways of talking about it. Animation during the classical Hollywood era loved to flirt with it and flaunt abstraction. Um, we'll talk more about that when we talk about animation, which is a huge part of the history of the blockbuster um, in, a, in a later uh, week. The new Hollywood blockbuster reverses this. And in terms of its aesthetic construction, its phenomenology, it, it puts material relations before abstraction. So if there are kind of abstract technologies or abstract patterns or forms or aesthetics that appear in the blockbuster, they, the experience of the blockbuster is always created in such a way that there, it feels like those abstractions sit on top of a hard material base. Now, my argument about this is that this is actually denying their own abstractness. It's, it, it's actually an illusion, it's an abstract illusion of material absorption and gravity and all of these relationships. But it is one that is the dominant one of the new Hollywood blockbuster. So one way of trying to describe this transition is you have the continuity aesthetics of the dream factory where it's sort of seeking this linear coherence through its aesthetics and its phenomenology. Whereas in the the new Hollywood blockbuster, instead of seeking continuity, it seeks contiguity, which essentially just means touching, right? Adjacency, physical proximity, physical absorption. <clears throat> but it's no longer about this linear continuity, so it's sort of fractured, or it's this intensified or post-continuity. Okay, so that's another way of describing this transition. And nobody has talked about this in, in this particular way. This is specific to my work. And I call the blockbuster essentially a hyper-Newtonian blockbuster. This is a term we'll use throughout the semester. These films are obsessed with physics, and in a certain way they're obsessed with Newtonian physics. Um, you know, direct material uh, relationships, causes, causes and effects. But it's not just like a strict, steady, boring Newtonianism where everything balances out. It's a hyperbolic Newtonianism. It's a totally imbalanced, wild Newtonianism, and again, especially in the action-adventure sequences. Um, 
We're not going to have time to talk about it in this class. If you want to write uh, a paper about it, uh, you're welcome to. I think one day I'm going to teach the rise of the first-person shooter in the 1990s. Um, but just so you know, part of my argument here is that th these kinds of immersive physics aesthetics get established by Lucas and Spielberg in the 70s and in, in early 80s, and they become the template for AAA video games, uh, especially with the emergence of the first-person shooter uh, genre in the 1990s. And now, of course, we have, you know, uh, what are called physics engines, right? That you need to buy, you know, physics processors that are separate from graphics cards that are just on your computer to process all the physics calculations. And my argument is that the, 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 value, the value of those physics, the desire for these immersive physics didn't actually come from the video game industry necessarily. They came from this desire that came from the blockbuster originally. Okay, so these are films that are obsessed with material gathering and I, what I call touching at a distance. And in a certain way, that's what gravity is. That's what the simulation of gravity is. It's this sense that, well, there's these real material forces that are connecting things at a distance, but in doing so, they are, the, these films are um, actually denying, denying connections at a distance because all they wanna do is reduce everything to materiality and touching. 